Welcome to the Burn Bag Podcast. My name is Andre. I'm being joined by Ryan. And this is the last installment, uh, the last interview, actually, of our miniseries, Sri Lanka Debt, Development, and Democracy. And we have a very special guest. It is U.S. Ambassador to Sri Lanka, Elena B. Teplitz. Uh, Ambassador Teplitz is actually wrapping up her time in Sri Lanka right now. But Ryan, we had a very good hour-long conversation with her uh, very fascinating. We've been hearing a lot of the Sri Lankan perspectives, a diverse array of different political perspectives. And then, of course, one journalist who gave us an overview of Sri Lanka's political and economic landscape so far uh, in the last 10 years. And then, of course, an economist who was able to give us a rundown of what's actually going on in Sri Lanka's economy and how does Sri Lanka's economy interact with China and the United States of course, the three politicians had very different views, depending on which side of the aisle they were on. But Ambassador Teplitz really provides a great U.S. perspective. I mean, I mean, the obvious U.S. perspective, given that she is the current ambassador to Sri Lanka. Ryan, what were your initial thoughts? Yeah, Andrea, I really enjoyed this episode, mostly because the ambassador provided really what the U.S. strategy or what the U.S. policy for Sri Lanka is. And of course, it's at, at you know the very... Uh, top level, it's to advance U.S. interests. But what does that look like on the ground? Well, that looks, you know, like working with the Sri Lankan people. And I, I think, and you and I have talked about this, Andre, that uh, the the embassy in Colombo has a great communication strategy. They do a very good job of interacting with the Sri Lankan people, particularly during the difficulties of COVID nineteen. And as we've kind of discovered, both through your experience on the ground in Sri Lanka and through this series, is that. The country is just has been ravaged by COVID economically, politically, and even socially. And so uh, the fact that the, the U.S. embassy there is able to operate even amidst this chaos just kind of goes and demonstrates the, the lengths that the U.S. Uh, diplomatic personnel take. And I think that is, at, you know, at a very kind of high level of just U.S. foreign policy is, is nice to see. Yeah, it is nice to see. And I've always had some praise, I guess, for the U.S. embassy's communication strategy and how... They've been able to, you know, insert certain topics, certain keywords in their tweets or their posts to indicate what the U.S. is actually doing with regards to Sri Lanka. And Ambassador Teplitz is very upfront, very forthright about what she believes, what U.S. policy is. I mean, over the course of this miniseries, of course, when we've heard some more political folks, uh, we've certainly seen some people dodge some questions, to be frank, dodge a lot of questions. Uh, Ambassador Teplitz didn't really dodge any questions. She answered virtually everything I asked directly, uh, very succinctly, but in a very detailed fashion to indicate, okay, here's a U.S. policy, here's my retort, my response to what someone else said, and so on. So I really appreciated that. Yeah, and I think on top of that, something that we have talked about in almost all these episodes is aid or sometimes investment, the kind of the juxtaposition of U.S. aid versus maybe Chinese investment. And so uh, the ambassador was very forthcoming with how the U.S. approaches its aid. Uh, and in particular, that uh, they don't really see it as being conditions-based per se, but rather the aid is there are certain qualifications that countries need to meet in order to qualify uh, for aid. And so that I think is an important distinction that we haven't heard before. Exactly. Qualifications being the key word, because we've often used the phrase conditions-based, conditions-based, conditions-based in our prior interviews. And whether you believe conditions or qualifications are the same sort of word, she did use the word qualifications. 
And I did think that she had a very interesting response to the discussion on the MCC. And Ryan, what is the MCC? The the MCC is a Millennium Challenge Corporation. And so what it is, is essentially a U.S. body that is responsible for a variety of kind of economic engagements. And so many people, you know, if you want to think about it, it's, it's, they both do kind of like aid-ish, aid-adjacent packages, but also investments. It's more of like the U.S. foreign investment that's maybe most similar to kind of how China invests uh, in Sri Lanka. You, you passed my quiz, Ryan, also, because I could not remember what that acronym is. I couldn't, I can never remember exactly what the acronym for the MCC is. But yeah, Ryan, just as you noted, very much uh, helping Sri Lanka develop engaged in economic development and so on. That's the goals of the MCC. And she does note that the previous Rajapaksa government did approach the United States for an MCC. She said an MCC was pondered by the Sri Lankan government since the mid-2000s. And uh, she does respond to the State Minister of Regional Affairs, basically the Deputy Foreign Minister Tharaka Balasuriya's claim in a previous interview that the MCC, there was no transparency around the MCC, and there were certain qualifications that weren't agreeable. The ambassador disputes this. She responds. She says that the Rajpaksa government went for it and uh, that it was more of a political sort of rejection of it. But Ryan, uh, we'll talk a bit more about this in the sort of the postlude for this interview. But for now, uh, here is Ambassador to Teplitz, It's a great interview. Welcome to the Brain Bag Podcast. My name is Andre Gonawala. This is the latest and the last episode in our mini-series on Sri Lanka. And I am so honored to be joined by our U.S. Ambassador to Sri Lanka, Elena B. Teplitz, who has been in the State Department since 1991. She served as U.S. Ambassador to Nepal between 2015 and 2018. And she has been serving as U.S. Ambassador to Sri Lanka and the Maldives since 2018. And I believe, actually, Ambassador, it's your last two weeks in Sri Lanka. Am I correct? This is true. Uh, I'm coming to the end of a three-year tour here. It's been uh, an interesting but tumultuous time. (laughs) A very interesting and tumultuous time. And we are so greatly appreciative of your service here in the United States. So I guess we can just get started and dive into this conversation. So, Ambassador... What do you think, what do you see as the state of U.S.-Sri Lankan relations in 2021? The relationship, the bilateral relationship is a complex and a complicated one. It's a resilient one. uh, And it's one that's not solely defined by our government to government connections. We've got people to people ties, business to business. And I think when we talk about U.S. and Sri Lanka, we sort of automatically assume it's all government business, but really it's not. Uh, And there's a lot happening in those other spaces that we can either facilitate or promote, um, but not all of which is in U.S. government control. And I think that that's uh, that's a good thing. Um, You know, and our relationship also is one that's defined by things that we should have in common. We're uh, Sri Lanka and the United States, both democracies. Uh, We both have uh, concerns, I think, around Uh, maritime security, we have concerns around cybersecurity, we have concerns about climate adaptation and the environment. Um, There's a lot to be working on together. So what are ways in which the United States and Sri Lanka can actually foster closer ties? What can we do better from the U.S. side? I'd like to say we're working hard at it all the time. Uh, This is really important. And I think there's always an opportunity to be communicating better to uh, the Sri Lankan public, 
um, also an opportunity to try and communicate better with the government too and better understand their perspectives. I mean, that's just sort of mainline diplomacy and um, how we kind of oil the gears of our relationship. Um, you know, I also think that we have to look at things as they exist today um, in consideration of our broad range of interests. And, you know, this is sometimes uh, a challenge for us, not just in Sri Lanka, but all countries. Uh, you know, we're, we're not interested um, simply in uh, promoting investment, for example, U.S. investment, and we're not interested simply in uh, looking at development. We're not interested just in good governance um, or a security relationship. It's that broad array of interests um, and being mindful of how we advance all of those interests um, is something that I think can help us uh, in our relationship and as we're searching for those areas of common interest. So have ties been strained between the United States and Sri Lanka under the current and prior governments ruled by Mahinda Rajapaksa and Gotabe Rajapaksa right now, uh, respectively? And then also, what's the overall arc of the relationship looked like, especially since the end of the civil war in 2009? So, I mean, every relationship has ups and downs. Um, it's got changes in tone over time. Uh, and, you know, certainly the U.S.-Sri Lanka relationship has, uh, has had uh, that. Um, and, you know, our, our challenge really is figuring out what are the enduring sets of interests and how to pursue those things through the good times and the bad times. Um, and, you know, we do have, I think, um, in common, again, uh, values, a set of values that's really important. It should give us the ability to understand one another better and be able to collaborate around this, you know, much broader set of interests. Um, and, but, you know, it is uh, a challenge, obviously, when we do have some concerns in the relationship about uh, the quality of governance, for example, or uh, around, uh, you know, commitments to inclusive economic development. Um, you know, these are things that we've got to work through. Uh, and, you know, I don't, I don't want to sugarcoat and say that everything is always fine. There, there are genuinely um, some issues that we, we have to work through. So in a previous episode on this miniseries, uh, we spoke with the State Minister for Regional Cooperation, Tharaka Balasuria, and he asserted, and I do want to talk about the MCC just for a bit, because uh, Mr. Balasuria asserted that the Sri Lankan government declined uh, the MCC uh, because there was a, quote, lack of transparency with how the previous government handled it, and that there were certain conditions, per se, with how... Uh, that the Sri Lankan government, uh, this Sri Lankan government was not uh, in agreement to. For example, they had to pay back the money allocated by the MCC and other quote technical issues, as he said. So are these assertions true about these conditions and these technical issues? Uh, what's your response to these criticisms leveled by this uh, current government official? So first, let me sort of frame of the context um, for talking about the Money Challenge Corporation proposed grant was a development assistance grant that was proposed. Um, MCC is a US government agency, development assistance agency, and operates in, in about 30 countries uh, around the world. Um, to receive one of those grants, countries have to express interest, and then they have to meet uh, eligibility criteria, which includes uh, a scorecard on economic governance uh, and other dimensions. Uh, you know, We have limited resources, right? So you, there's a little bit of competition involved um, in this. Uh, so the Sri Lankan government had sought one of these grants actually for some time in the original uh, uh, President Rajapaksa administration going back to the early 2000s. Uh, and finally, something was coming uh, to fruition several years ago when 
uh, it was in fact the previous government um, began to dig into the details what that grant would look like and uh, finally uh, determined that looking at uh, ways to support land management administration and transportation would be most beneficial. In fact, the, the government of Sri Lanka funded uh, a study to determine what the binding constraints were to economic growth, and, and those were the things that they landed on. Um, so it was it was disappointing, obviously, that the grant wasn't able to go forward. It's significant. It was $480 million to address um, challenges in these two areas. Uh, and ultimately, the board of the Millennium Challenge Corporation uh, decided to discontinue the grant because of a lack of host government engagement. Um, so the, the technical issues you mentioned, I mean, um, the, the grant language is standard. It was actually published on a government of Sri Lanka website. So it was um, available freely to the public for months and months and months. There was a lot of stakeholder consultation around it um, as well with not just government, but with industry, um, with, um, with civil society, with academics. Um, so extensive work was done to not only validate the choice of, of areas, but um, sort of how the, uh, the grant would work. Uh, and the grants are generally set up so that the host government really owns them. They, they form a little mini corporation uh, uh, and you know, corporate really refers to the structure. It's not, it's not a private entity. I mean, it's a government entity uh, to oversee the grant um, and, and make sure that it's progressing. Um, and there was never any uh, formal communication from the government of Sri Lanka that they had objections to the framework of the grant or any of the components. Um, so again, I go back to the lack of engagement I mean, it's disappointing uh, in the sense that it was, I think, a real loss for a country that is still developing, that is caught in that kind of uh, upper middle income track, trap where it's, you know, on the cusp of um, sort of expanding the economy, but actually is still requiring a lot of assistance, you know, to make that, um, make that advancement and, and best serve people. So, um, it, you know, it's something that uh, I think, uh, you know, was... Uh, a kind of a blip in a 70-year relationship and um, you know we we move on from there. Definitely and sort of talking about U.S. economic aid uh, more overarchingly and overall so is it true that U.S. economic aid is often more conditions-based because this is this sort of claim I've been hearing over across these interviews in this mini-series for example with GSP plus human rights issues are highlighted whereas for example, Chinese aid is less conditions-based. Is this sort of an accurate assessment of these two countries and the aid uh, programs they offer? So, um, no, I mean, I think that's the short answer. Our US aid is really not conditions-based. And I don't think we ought to confuse either eligibility requirements versus you know, a conditionality. Uh, for example, going back to MCC and the scorecard, which is an eligibility threshold. Um, but we do, we look for certain things when we're offering assistance. I mean, the very first thing is if, the, if we're developing programs um, with a host government, with a government, the Sri Lankan government, there's gotta be an expectation of ownership. You know, they're, they're identifying the priorities. We're stepping in as a development partner to help them meet their priorities that they've identified probably as part of a, a far reaching, you know, development plan. And then we work those programs together. We don't just say, hey, we have a good idea, you know, uh, would you like to run with it? Um, also an alignment of values, um, I think is really important. And our development assistance is often around technical capacity building, but not just in, a, in maybe technical subject matters. It's not you know, talking economics to the Ministry of Finance, 
Um, but it could be, for example, helping parliament, a parliament set up oversight committees. Um, so we're interested in working together on values we share, and that could include um, the strengthening of democratic institutions. And, and there has to be some mutual understanding about the goals that we're trying to achieve as well. Um, so we, we do want some alignment. And you know, at the end of the day, uh, certainly I as an ambassador and others who manage our assistance dollars, we've got a fiduciary responsibility to the American people. <laughs> you know, um, they, they want our assistance dollars to be spent um, and achieve results in uh, ways that they've approved. Um, they wanna make sure that those results are uh, happening over the course of a grant. So I'd say the other piece of this, which is not really a condition, um, but it's just uh, the way we do business, not uniquely. I mean, World Bank, others, uh, other development partners do this, but we do uh, our due diligence before uh, offering uh, a grant. And 90% of all of our assistance globally is, is based on grants. Uh, but we're gonna look at is something technically feasible? Uh, you know, is it gonna generate the result we think like an economic return or uh, jobs or you know, some positive outcome? And then we're gonna monitor and evaluate over the life of that grant to make sure it is delivering or um, shut it down or rescope or do whatever we need to do to make sure the money is well spent. Um, so uh, in that sense, there's a lot of structure to what we do on the development side of the house. And um, that's not necessarily true for every development partner. And yet I think it's super important. I mean, you mentioned the issue of China. Um, I don't know if China's really giving assistance at the end of the day, it's not a lot of grants. It's not really looking at um, sort of the results uh, driven uh, end of things. And, you know, we, we want to adhere to high standards. And in fact, um, the United States, Sri Lanka, uh, Japan, other governments have signed up, um, you know, to various uh, international accords that sort of set standards for development. And I think that's important because you don't want to end up with, a, you know, maybe a bad metaphor, but a white elephant at the end of the day that doesn't deliver and in fact costs you. Certainly. And I guess sort of following up on that question, I mean, the perception is, uh, at least from my vantage point and some others in Sri Lanka and in just sort of U.S. foreign policy, sort of commentators in general, is that the Chinese are making more headway uh, with Sri Lanka in terms of uh, investments and economic partnerships. And sort of following up on what you were saying, is it just perhaps, quote, easier for Sri Lanka to deal with China or is it just because, say, for example, these eligibility requirements, uh, these standards, they're more, they're so, sort of less attractive? Is that sort of an accurate way to depict that? You know, I think you've got to ask questions. Uh, it, you know, if there's um, a problem with transparency, if there's a problem with due diligence, if there's a problem with, problem with doing like proper feasibility work, including environmental uh, impact studies, um, if there's a problem in making public the framework for such agreements, uh, you know, who benefits from that? Why, why would people be opposed to those things? Those things can only be good, especially in democratic societies where we should be accountable to our publics and, you know, taxpayers that fund these efforts. Um, so I, you know, I think that's part of the, the um, challenge, you know, that uh, is out there and maybe the easier piece of that. Um, it might also be the, you know, the who benefits uh, at the end of the day um, from some of this. Um, and, you know, looking at what, what do you want to do? I mean, the U.S. government doesn't, uh, doesn't invest in a metaphorical sense uh, in, in projects that aren't going to generate real results. Uh, and, you know, maybe uh, that's where uh, 
there ends up being some controversy because it's not about, it isn't about the result people want, it's about something else. It's about domestic politics or it's about an image um, or something like that. Um, we, we actually wanna produce development results or we wouldn't be extending that support. So when it comes to the Sri Lankan relationship with China, we've definitely seen it grow over the past decade and recent years. How does the U.S. government perceive the relationship between Sri Lanka and China? What is the U.S. government's position on the relationship, if there is a position to be had? Yeah, and I, you know, I think that's the important question in this. I mean, I don't, um, we don't perceive our, uh, you know, foreign policy in the region through the lens of what does it mean vis-a-vis China. I mean, we we're looking at the relationship with Sri Lanka, and of course, there are geostrategic kind of considerations, but that's not fundamentally what it's about. Um, and certainly not over a long, you know, history since uh, 70 years since Sri Lanka's independence. And so, you know, plenty of time to have evolved and evolved a relationship and gotten to know one another, if you will. Um, you know, that said, uh, globally, um, in the Indo-Pacific as well, and in other regions of the world, we've expressed concerns about ways of doing business, and we don't tell the Sri Lankans what to do. Um, uh, you know, as a friend and partner, we've often expressed concerns about the openness and transparency of the deals that they're making, more out of concerns that they become vulnerable as a result of non-transparent arrangements or arrangements that might obligate them financially and don't deliver any, you know, economically productive results at the end of the day. And then, you know, what leverage could be exerted against them and, and what that might mean, um, more so than than anything else. And, you know, if relationships are mutually beneficial, if they're open, if they're transparent, you know, these are these are good results. Um, again, particularly in a democratic society. And, and often we find that that the PRC's arrangements are opaque um, and, you know, not necessarily mutually beneficial in the end, depending on where one sits, um, you know, and can take a look at that. So I and I and I think um, you know, another piece of this in terms of again how we would approach uh, sort of whether it's development work or business work, you know, we're, we're big on public-private partnerships. We're big in letting uh, kind of um, opportunities grow organically um, to a certain degree. And that's that's not really part of, I, I think, the feature of other relationships. And, you know, that makes it hard then to, to um, you know, to, to mesh up our different ways of looking at things. So when it comes to these loan agreements that have made quite a lot of news in the U.S. at least, there have been many articles written in U.S. media outlets about them. Is there enough transparency around both the loan agreements and perhaps some of the more foreign direct investment uh, programs that have occurred between Sri Lanka and China? There is not a lot of transparency around the loan agreements. Most of these texts aren't public. Um, often the PRC is uh, asking countries to sign non-disclosure agreements so they can't reveal loan agreements uh, details. Um, so it's highly problematic. I mean, it would be very difficult for anyone, not, you know, not just speaking from the U.S. government perspective, but if I were, a, you know, a Sri Lankan, um, wanting to assess whether the agreements being entered into render some benefit, you know, um, or if um, they they uh, are going to cause problems down the pipe. So that I think is difficult, and then it's difficult to assess the true value of projects. Um, you know, was it really what it cost? <laughs> and then what's the cost, what's the ROI on that um, at the end of the day? So, you know, that's challenging. Um, I also think we have to look at uh, in kind of investment and ask questions or, or maybe just better define what that term means. Um, when, when we, the U.S., talk about investment, 
often we do mean it. Uh, it's, it's literal in the sense of we're putting money on the table, maybe in the form of a development grant, uh, but it's kind of a metaphor. We don't really expect anything return um, other than hopefully the good results from the program that we are funding. Um, you know, there aren't quid pro quos on the table uh, in that, you know, in that sense. Um, and U.S. companies might come in and make investments, genuine investments where they put their money on the table, uh, you know, and they are, they're looking for partnerships where they can build a business and, and presumably profit from that. Um, I think there are uh, investment is kind of misapplied to other arrangements that might actually turn out to be loans, you know, where you have a, uh, you, you might have the Sri Lankan government, in fact, that has taken out a loan to invest in its own development. It's not necessarily that country investing in that development, maybe they're facilitating. Um, but, you know, that's, that's where good decision-making on the part of the government is also essential. And so again, coming back to these loan agreements and not necessarily knowing um, what they what they provide for uh, is you know are the policy decisions good in advance of signing those agreements and are they going to yield the results that people are expecting or are you know are going to be are people going to be left holding the bag? I think it's so important that you distinguish between the loans and the actual investments that are occurring. But when we look at the Belt and Road Initiative-linked investments and projects, are those fair per se? Uh, if many of these are linked to you know, Chinese contractors, for example, are they actually fair to Sri Lankan firms on the ground? That's a really good question. I mean, a lot of the tendering uh, procedures uh, related to these programs or projects are, again, non-transparent uh, or not potentially not even open to broader competition. You know, there are requirements, perhaps, that the, the country providing the money, uh, you know, those firms are selected. Um, you know, there's not really a true uh, kind of private sector, and I, I think in the PRC, and so, you know, you see loans coming from that source being tied to mostly state-owned companies. Um, so you're, you're not seeing private deals uh, taking place. That's not necessarily really investment. Um, there is uh, some BRI uh, investment um, or some BRI activity in Sri Lanka that might not be uh, all bad. You've got an expressway that's really important, um, going to help open area, areas of the country to tourism, but you don't know how much that expressway costs. So there's really no way to kind of measure whether the return you know, equals the expense. Um, there's also uh, kind of uh, uh, efforts to build investment that isn't around um, that kind of infrastructure, the, the port city, um, which is not a port, <laughs> it's intended to be a financial city, but it's reclaimed land. Um, and this was something that um, Czech China Harbor Engineering and some of its subsidiaries put money into to um, develop. Um, right now, it's basically a big sandbar. Um, but uh, for example, the legislation that's meant to define this special place is really um, uh, troubling. It could potentially open the door to corrupt practices, um, to money laundering, um, and other uh, activity that is going to not just impact what happens in that space, but could have spillover into the Sri Lankan economy and affect Sri Lankan companies. So um, I think there are a lot of questions, and you know, some of this just uh, means that countries really need to think through how they're going to approach um, all of their partners um, and what kind of arrangements they're comfortable with and what disclosure has to be on the table and what's in their best interests at the end of the day. And what are those, you know, sort of uh, kind of loopholes or fine print 
that are going to get them in trouble. So you mentioned this uh, in an earlier answer, and you sort of alluded to it right now to talk about whether some of these agreements and these arrangements are uh, mutually beneficial. Uh, so in your view, have Chinese investments, have they generated economic benefits to the average Joe in Sri Lanka, or has it largely benefited the elites? Who is it really helping out here? Again, it's hard to determine because there's not a lot of transparency around amounts of loans or terms and conditions, you know, for um, uh, surrounding any given project. Um, but I see a lot of projects sitting around um, that were uh, developed with uh, funding that the government of Sri Lanka obtained from the Chinese government um, and that aren't generating revenue. So, I mean, I have to draw the conclusion that, um, you know, Without uh, the broad branch answer is uh, yes, there are projects that are not sort of benefiting the average Joe on the street. Um, Hanban Toto Port is one that's often raised as an example, but um, I think even better is to consider that developed around the same time was also an airport, um, a hospital, a cricket stadium, uh, a telecommunications tower in Colombo called Lotus Tower. Um, these things are either underutilized or in the case of Lotus Tower, completely empty. And yet the government's on the hook for paying back those loans. So they're not revenue um, enhancing. They're not generating the income and the jobs that everybody might have expected from them. I mean, this, this come from poor feasibility work or uh, somebody just kind of getting ahead of themselves. I don't know. Um, but you can clearly see that there are projects that really didn't deliver results. Maybe they will in the future, but they're they're not doing so today. You mentioned the Hamban Toto Port, and we've heard a lot about that in the U.S. media and a lot of foreign policy conversations that have been occurring. And uh, there's a lot of discussion that is centered around the 99-year lease that uh, Chinese entities have over the port. Uh, what concerns specifically does the U.S. have over the Hamban Toto Port? So, um, you know, just... Thinking about the, the region, Sri Lanka sits um, next to the major shipping lanes that, uh, that crisscross uh, the Indian Ocean. 80% of the world's, I think, container traffic passes either by or through um, Colombo uh, and past Hanbantota as well. So certainly there was an economic opportunity that the Sri Lankans were seeking to seize in developing Hanbantota, which is a little closer to those shipping lanes than the Colombo port, which is on the other side of the island. Um, the, the port was developed uh, and uh, it was obviously developed with um, support from PRC companies and now, uh, and now there's this lease arrangement. Um, you know, the issue becomes what, what else might be happening in those spaces uh, and um, what leverage the, um, the PRC might have in its relationships with, uh, with Sri Lanka um, that could kind of accrue benefit that would um, uh, either lead to something that's militarized or uh, would become problematic. There's been a lot of uh, research done by think tanks. I mean, going back for years and uh, the study I can think of is the C480 ADS, um, Harvard Ambitions uh, study from a couple of years ago that discussed sort of port development across the region. Uh, and, you know, uh, Hanbantoto could be one of those places. Um, you know, that said, I, I think the Sri Lankans do obviously have an economic need to develop that port and make sure it's going to work. Um, so they've got to find a partner that is going to is going to work for them and have some control um, over that asset, not only from a national security perspective, but just from an economic perspective um, so that they, they can make sure that it's it's going to deliver for them. So 
touching on the Humbunto port and some of these other investments and some of these other basically projects that have been occurring, do aspects of China's relationship with Sri Lanka, do they raise concerns within US government circles about Sri Lanka's sovereignty? Um, yes, uh, frankly, they do. And, you know, our uh, the American approach, the U.S. approach is one uh, where we would like to see countries able to fully exert their sovereignty um, over their territory, over their exclusive economic zones, particularly in the maritime space. This is essential. Uh, and uh, projects that maybe don't so obviously infringe on a country's sovereignty can do so in uh, maybe kind of backdoor ways. And I come back to you know, the potential for leverage. If a country is maybe not even you know, majorly indebted to another bilateral partner, but the agreements that they signed you know, um, uh, have onerous requirements in them or um, would lead them to negotiations to hand over assets or offer special rights uh, to do things that you know, wouldn't really be in their national interest, but now they've become obligated to, that leverage can be really dangerous to a country's sovereignty. And this is where transparency and development work or in, uh, in business investment or whatever is really essential, which is, of course, to avoid um, these arrangements or, again, the fine print that might not, have been, uh, might not have been obvious. And the more vulnerable a country, you know, the less well-performing the economy or the higher the debt load, obviously, leverage can be exerted with more force. And so that, you know, that it would be very worrisome. So it's not to say that any given project, I think, is, uh, you know, in and of itself a threat to sovereignty. It's when it begins to accumulate. Um, and you kind of look at the whole context to a country um, and what, uh, what they're going to need to, uh, to get out of these programs and projects. And, you know, we haven't quite touched on this yet, but the, the Sri Lankan economy is not in good condition. Um, their uh, credit rating is kind of the lowest of the low right now. Nobody's uh, really going to lend money to them, not, not uh, very credible lenders. So, um, you know, they're in a vulnerable place and um, it, it just, you know, might become difficult to defend sovereignty in not just kind of a literal sense, but an economic sense as well. I will return to a question on Sri Lanka's economy towards the end of the interview, but I just want to touch on a couple of other things very briefly. Uh, you did mention that, obviously, when we look at our relationship with Sri Lanka, we're looking at the relationship with Sri Lanka, not necessarily in the context of U.S.-China relations. But can you sort of speak to how Sri Lanka perhaps fits into the broader broader nature of the U.S. Indo-Pacific strategy. Um, and, and maybe that's a good way to frame that. And when we're talking about our Indo-Pacific strategy or a vision for the Indo-Pacific, it, it isn't about choosing sides. <laughs> it's, it's really a discussion about buy-in to key principles and of like-minded countries coming together around those principles and in support of those principles. You know, this could be things like dispute resolution, um, free and open trade or um, unhindered air and sea navigation. Uh, it's very important international norms that allow, in fact, countries to protect their sovereignty, but also allow us to kind of get along and for international commerce to proceed in ways that are uh, going to generate the growth and development we want to see in, in all countries, the prosperity you know, that we're looking for. Um, so when we think about the Indo-Pacific vision, I mean, Sri Lanka is obviously kind of at the heart of some of that, given its geography, its geographic location next to these shipping lines. 
Um, and you know, maybe that's the best example I can also offer of why um, the principles we talk about in the, the context of the Indo-Pacific uh, vision are so important and should be also to Sri Lanka. I mean, freedom of navigation is essential to facilitate the container traffic, the cargo traffic, that is the lifeblood of Colombo port uh, and something that Sri Lanka wants to cultivate even more of as it's developing Hanbantota and you know, potentially expanding um, other port capacity. Uh, but without that, that right, that you know, privilege that can be safely exerted, it, you know, their economy is at risk. It also risks our global supply chain, you know, and our uh, ability to ship our goods and services. And uh, the United States is actually the single largest, or the, or the largest single country uh, export destination for Sri Lanka. So this is an important part of our bilateral relationship: is the ability to ship the goods produced here to the United States. So, um, you know, when we talk about this principle, um, it's not a vision that should exclude anybody. It's a vision about principles that should be most meaningful to us uh, in the sense of our sovereignty as, as countries. Um, and, you know, I think, again, um, it's been easy to kind of take uh, something that has a title, Indo-Pacific vision or Indo-Pacific strategy, and turn that into something that's heavily politicized, when the content itself is actually something that we can all agree on. And in the case of Sri Lanka, we do work together on maritime security. Uh, we have interests not just in facilitating freedom of navigation, but in interdicting uh, international illicit traffic, and whether that's trafficking in people or smuggling of drugs and guns and what have you, we collaborate around that too. Looking at illegal fishing, looking at all of the things you know that concern us in the maritime space. So we've got the collaboration. Um, happening in real time, and you know, sometimes the rhetoric uh, deviates from that a little. You mentioned supply chains, and just for audience, I'm sure we all realize the importance of supply chains right now <laughs> as we sort of face this economic moment. But uh, another question is, South Asia is somewhat notorious, I guess, for being one of the least integrated regions in the world. Are there more opportunities for integration, for regional integration in South Asia? Absolutely. Uh, and uh, you noted I had previously been ambassador to Nepal, uh, and this was something I talked about frequently when I was there as well. Uh, the econ untapped economic potential in South Asia is huge. I mean, it could be a driver of prosperity, not just for the, the countries of this region, but globally as well for their trade partners uh, and, and some mutual investment that could be generated. Um, so there's big potential. And I think um, Sri Lanka already is sort of at the heart, again, of some of that because Colombo port is a transshipment port uh, for a lot of India. It's a deep water port. And so container ships come here and you know, disperse their cargo to many smaller ships that head off then back to India or uh, over to Bangladesh. Um, there's obviously more potential for that and vice versa for goods that are manufactured there to be consolidated and shipping here and then you know, sent off to its destination. Uh, port capacity would obviously have to be expanded and, and everything would have to work out. And the, uh, the Sri Lankans uh, in fact have uh, facilitated an arrangement um, with an Indian company to develop their Western container terminals so, uh, in the Colombo port. So some of that is already underway. There's probably also great potential for regional electricity uh, and energy sharing. Uh, and for, uh, you know, Sri Lanka doesn't share a land border, but restoring uh, sort of ferry service or, or even um, road connectivity with India, you know, would just facilitate commerce, air connections, um, 
the Sri Lankans are reestablishing an air route uh, into India uh, that had been shut down for a while. So that kind of thing can grow. And if countries can find ways to negotiate to remove some of the tariff and non-tariff barriers to facilitate that, um, that trade and connectivity, I, I think they would really only benefit. Uh, and you know, this is not uh, something the United States is going to accomplish. It's really gonna take the countries of the region being committed to this, but we can certainly um, try and facilitate by encouraging and providing technical assistance where it's asked for um, to make that happen. So what opportunities for security cooperation exist between the U.S. and Sri Lanka? Have we seen security cooperation be elevated between Sri Lanka and China? So between um, uh, the U.S. And, and Sri Lanka, I mean, the first thing I'd say is our security cooperation really does exist in the context for our concern around democratic governance and human rights. Um, and, you know, we, we take a holistic view of all uh, our engagement along the whole spectrum of our various interests. Um, and there is uh, security cooperation. I just mentioned maritime cooperation, for example, uh, where we work uh, with the Sri Lankan Navy. Uh, we do some joint exercises also with other navies in the region um, to support patrolling of the maritime space uh, and make sure that uh, various services are trained in how to, um, you know, maybe, uh, uh, board boats or, you know, interdict sort of illicit uh, activity. Um, the United States has provided uh, in the past two um, excess U.S. Coast Guard cutters um, to the Sri Lankan Navy. In fact, the, the last one is right now the biggest ship in the Navy's, uh, the Sri Lankan Navy's fleet. Um, and it's done more than just kind of deal with what's illegal out there. Um, it's also been key to response to maritime disasters. And that's a whole other dimension of, um, you know, I think, the, the challenge in looking at busy commercial world where you have a lot of ships going back and forth. There have been two very near disasters to Sri Lanka uh, that have leaked oil, where there have been fires. Uh, the last uh, ship uh, exuded these nurdles, which are little plastic pellets, you know, that ended up on beaches. Um, and the Navy, the uh, Sri Lankan's government ability to respond to those disasters is um, really important, uh, not only for Sri Lanka's well-being, but for nearby countries as well. And so our engagement has also um, been in that sort of humanitarian disaster resist, uh, disaster assistance, disaster response space um, also. Uh, and I think that's important to be able to continue that. I mean, if we want to have partners, we've got to work together. We, we need to figure out if, uh, if we can exercise together um, and have some joint uh, capabilities. Uh, so it, that's an important part of it. Uh, on the other hand, we're, you know, we're also very thoughtful about who we engage with uh, and why uh, and want to make sure that we're always engaging in ways that are consistent with our values. So in 2021, we saw the inauguration of President Joe Biden. Uh, we also saw President Trump's administration take a lot of uh, initiative and action with regards to Sri Lanka. We saw Secretary of State Mike Pompeo visit. Uh, just I think a week before the US elections actually, which I thought was very interesting. But has there truly been a shift in US foreign policy towards Sri Lanka? Uh, I mean, we often think of you know two presidents as being politically different, but some things are fairly consistent. So has there been a shift? Some things are fairly consistent. I mean, every administration has an emphasis and has a certain set of priorities, but 
Um, what we have been working to achieve with regard to Sri Lanka and, and in some uh, extents the broader region um, really has transitioned, not just from one, you know, the last administration to this one, but across um, multiple administrations. And so this is uh, transparency, it's been economic development, it's been concern for human rights. Um, it's been looking at quality development standards. It's been an, Indo an evolving Indo-Pacific um, vision. Um, these are all things that we continue to work on uh, and uh, are looking at ways to expand engagement. Uh, President Biden has uh, announced his particular emphases, and of course, one of them is the environment. And so looking more at climate adaptation and the environment um, is something we're focused on now and post-pandemic recovery. Uh, whenever we reach the end of this experience, I mean, that's going to be, um, I think, a challenge globally, something we've obviously focused on and focus on in providing pandemic assistance. But, you know, it's become a necessity as, as we look at the, uh, the impact on economies across the globe. So the end of Sri Lanka's civil war was quite controversial, and the United States has promoted some initiatives for accountability. We saw some conversations occur at the United Nations uh, just last month, actually, about some of the uh, human rights allegations against Sri Lanka. So can you sort of outline more specifically, what is the United States government uh, doing to promote, to promote accountability for controversies that abounded at the end of the Sri Lankan civil war? So um, just to also frame this, I mean, during this 30 year civil conflict that ended in 2009, but even after the conflict, um, we have, uh, asked the government of Sri Lanka to uh, invest itself in reconciliation and also to pursue accountability for allegations of gross violations of human rights um, and any other criminal acts. Um, Sri Lanka does, uh, at various points in its history, um, has uh, had these uh, episodes. Um, and so I, I wouldn't say that our concerns around human rights are centered just around that time period. Um, there are early examples of enforced disappearances and other problems, and you know those are equally problematic and things that I think um, for Sri Lanka's uh, sake and the sake of the Sri Lankan people, um, addressing these things is gonna certainly make for a healthier and more stable future. So with that said, um, we have uh, uh, encouraged the government in accordance with its international obligations and its domestic obligations to address these issues. And, and I feel that fundamentally, um, a democratic government that is accountable to its people should be willing to genuinely and credibly investigate and adjudicate criminal allegations. I mean, that is a bottom line in the rule of law and something that the Sri Lankan government, I hope comes to the point where they would very fully embrace that. That has been the subject of conversations at the UN Human Rights Council um, uh, of observations made by uh, Human Rights Commissioner, High Commissioner Michelle Bachelet and, and many others, um, those who are uh, in the international human rights NGO community, uh, government, it's not just our own, uh, about some of the challenges here in Sri Lanka. So, you know, it's a very tough question because I think it's very emotional when you talk about issues of accountability and, you know, families of the disappeared, um, they deserve answers about what happened to their family members. Um, people who were the victims of um, unlawful acts deserve some justice at the end of the day. Um, and in, again, democratic societies, this is kind of our baseline. 
Um, so we do talk about that with the government of Sri Lanka. Um, we talk about other concerns on human rights as well, uh, and you know, look at um, kind of that broad array of, of human rights issues. But I think um, this particular challenge, because it goes back to multiple points in Sri Lanka's history, because it is um, you know, kind of such a, a, a sore uh, in relationships, uh, and, and kind of rightly so, it's something that has to be healed and it can't just be covered over, um, is that it speaks to a culture of impunity that's fundamentally corrosive to Sri Lanka's democracy. Um, and that's something Sri Lankans have to address. Um, and have to be willing to kind of confront and look at openly. We can encourage, um, we can continue to keep the spotlight um, on this set of issues. We can continue to, um, in fact, try and um, facilitate uh, measures of reconciliation. Uh, but uh, Sri Lankans are really gonna have to embrace this and own this uh, as a challenge that they have to solve for a better future. So does a lack of movement towards accountability and a discussion on human rights, does, on the Sri Lankan side at least, does it hamper the U.S.-Sri Lankan relationship? And could this perhaps hamper engagement in other areas such as economic relations? Well, it's certainly an issue around which we do not always agree. Uh, and in that sense, we have very hard conversations, you know, related to this particular topic. I mean, again, our... our in our foreign policy we and our engagements uh, abroad, uh, we're leading with our values uh, on these issues. And not only are we committed to these solving these problems for ourselves in the United States, as uh, President Biden you know, laid out in the, the interim national security guidance, um, but we want to see our, our partners uh, also um, being able to address these challenges. And in a country, again, that is a democracy, I think it's essential that all of the people all of their rights, uh, all, are, all of their civil liberties are respected all of the time. Um, and I, I point out too that I think the dimensions of the problem are simply not a Tamil and Sinhala one. We haven't really you know, gone deep into the details of uh, sort of what that 30 year conflict was about. There are multiple communities in Sri Lanka uh, and there are challenges along various dimensions. And so this becomes a much more fundamental question uh, than, than simply one relating to the conflict era. Um, and it's not a question we as Americans are really gonna shy away from. It's fundamental to who we are um, and how we're going to engage and, um, and our understanding also of how societies can grow and prosper. I mean, back to linking to you know, economic results. Um, if you can't get the kind of the politics and the governance right, it's really hard to get the economics right um, and, and see inclusive, uh, equitable uh, economic growth as a result. Um, we also look at Sri Lanka, again, across that broad spectrum of interests. Um, you know, we don't compartmentalize, but we do understand that our, um, our interests are linked. And, you know, back to our earlier discussion about some of the security relationship, um, you know, we, we don't engage with uh, military units, for example, that might have allegations against them, unadjudicated allegations that have been made against them for wartime conduct. Um, we do ensure that we, uh, our engagements uh, adhere to strict human rights principles and norms. Um, and, you know, I think we wouldn't, we would not be true to ourselves as Americans if we didn't engage that way and make sure that our partners, um, you know, understand our perspectives. So now looking to the future, we saw a recent deal signed between the United States-based New Fortress Energy Company and Sri Lanka. Is this indicative, perhaps, of further U.S. engagement with Sri Lanka economically, 
especially as China, for example, has a long-standing dominance in the energy sector? Uh, the New Fortress Energy Project, uh, uh, as it comes to fruition, this is a great example of genuine investment. It's a, it's, you know, well, well-regarded, well-known U.S. company, uh, independently pursuing a business opportunity and bringing their own money to the table. There are no sovereign guarantees. There's no, uh, you know, kind of government facilitated loan to this. So in that sense, it presents the opportunity for the Sri Lankans to show that they can be investment ready uh, and that they can work with an array of partners. Um, and, you know, I think one of the weaknesses of the Sri Lankan investment environment is that they don't necessarily have a broad array of investment partners and they really need to show um, that they welcome uh, investment from all corners. Uh, so it can send those positive signals uh, at the end of the day. So how does a trade deficit between the U.S. and Sri Lanka, how does that affect economic ties? It doesn't really. Um, you know, clearly there's a, 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 a trade disparity with uh, Sri Lanka sending many more goods to the United States uh, than the U.S. exports to um, Sri Lanka, but the relationship continues to grow and evolve. And we do have Sri Lankan investment in the United States. Um, and we're looking for more uh, investment in this direction. New Fortress Energy is just one example. I will say that U.S. investment in this direction has been stagnant um, over the last several years. Uh, that's disappointing um, and a situation I'd like to see change because I know there's so much potential here. Uh, and there are a lot of businesses that would be eager to have relationships with U.S. companies, which are known for helping with technology transfer. They hire local people, uh, you know, um, main, adhere to high standards of environmental uh, concerns and uh, worker safety and health. So, um, you know, we have a gold standard in terms of our, our business relationships. Um, the investment environment in Sri Lanka is a little bit of a challenge. Uh, they kind of rank in the bottom half of all the indexes, whether it's uh, the corruption index or ease of doing business index. And so the, those are things they're going to have to address. Um, we've been very clear about uh, what would be helpful um, to, uh, to address, to attract investment. And that certainly would extend to transparency in government decision-making. It would extend to uh, things like um, predictability and regulation, contract enforcement. You know, the, the basics um, would certainly make this a more attractive uh, destination. Um, but it, you know, so in that sense, private sector is kind of just deterred on the face of the difficulty of the environment, the risk inherent in the environment. It's not necessarily, uh, you know, a feature of an official trading relationship. So what's the appetite actually looked like among U.S. investors, perhaps looking to do business in Sri Lanka? Have they, you talked about the bit, a bit about how they've been deterred by the environment that's been set, but have some of the tense political situations over the past few, few years, some of those political events, uh, has that significantly deterred uh, new investors uh, from going to Sri Lanka? I'm sure it's a combination of factors. You know, companies are going to assess, uh, assess their risk uh, and potential exposure in a given environment. I mean, you refer to some political events. There was uh, in late 2018, a, a constitutional crisis that lasted for about 50 days. And uh, just a couple of months after that, um, there was a devastating terror attack uh, that occurred in uh, Colombo and Batakaloa targeting um, hotels and churches. Um, you know, these these are events I'm sure investors take note of uh, and want to see some predictability and stability in the environment uh, that they're dealing with. But 
that regulatory aspect, that uh, sort of ease of doing business component, I, I think is probably the preponderant part of that equation. Um, and investors want to see that they can make a return and it doesn't cost them you know, more than they can afford uh, to, uh, to make that investment. And so the welcoming business environment, uh, just doing things like having a single window to streamline permits and approvals, um, you know, it's that kind of thing that I think is going to make the difference. And, uh, you know, as we've suggested to the, the government of Sri Lanka, we have a lot of global competition. U.S. investors have choices. We'd like to see U.S. investors here because we think there's potential and potential in the region. And we have a history of people to people ties and business to business ties. But clearly there's more opportunity that right now uh you know, uh, could be seized. So Sri Lanka's economy, as we mentioned earlier and throughout this episode, is frankly in dire straits right now. Uh, but the Sri Lankan government does not still deem it necessary to go to the IMF, the International Monetary Fund. Uh, do you think Sri Lanka's economy can rough it out through the crisis or do they need IMF aid? Would the U.S. sort of suggest that IMF aid be sought out? Yeah, it, dire straits is a good way to maybe uh, describe the economic situation. It, it, it's not good, um, and it's driven by much more than just the pandemic. I mean, there's been some poor policy making um, that has uh, seen import bans um, instituted, uh, price controls, um, policies that have cut into government revenue, a lot of things that have contributed to the the poor situation and compounded by debt sustainability. So. Uh, is the IMF really the only option? Um, it's certainly the best option on the table and maybe the only viable option. I mean, the IMF was uh, was formed initially to not just end poverty, but also uh, support financial stability globally. And Sri Lanka is an IMF member country. They should avail themselves of the techno technical expertise, certainly, of the IMF. This is something we have, have urged the government of Sri Lanka to do, is to go to the IMF. And you, you noted um, former Secretary Pompeo's visit. It's something he raised during his visit, urged the government even then a year ago uh, to consider going to the IMF um, for financial support, but also, the again, that technical support. I also think um, you know this has become a heavily politicized issue in a country where uh, of foreign interference or the trope of foreign interference is uh, something that kind of generates votes. Um, uh, and it's been politicized, uh, I, I think, um, kind of dangerously because the country really does need uh, to find a solution out of its economic uh, situation. And while I think it's a thing of the past to equate IMF and austerity you know, in people's heads, that's kind of you know, old versions. Um, there are going to have to be tough political choices and putting together a plan or a program to engage in economic reform with the IMF is maybe going to take some political will. It's really going to be necessary. You can't run an economy on uh, swap lines, uh, you know, alone. You've got you've to have something that's sustainable, something that will be a seal of approval to investors. So what type of COVID-related aid is being provided directly to Sri Lanka. We've seen COVID really take a hit on this economy. Uh, and we've seen China provide a lot of Sinopharm vaccines to Sri Lanka. What's the U.S. doing? So globally, the United States has uh, put forward about $9 billion to support uh, addressing the pandemic uh, across the world. And um, this includes almost 200 uh, million doses of vaccines globally. In Sri Lanka, the U.S. government has provided about 2.4 million doses of Pfizer and Moderna vaccine uh, free of charge through the COVAX facility. 
Um, I would note, yes, uh, there is Sinopharm and uh, Sinovac here. Some of that was purchased by the government of Sri Lanka. Um, our, our donations have all been just that, donations and free of cost. Um, in addition, we provided about $18 million worth of other assistance, uh, whether it was in kind, like ventilators, uh, rapid assessment test kits, PPE, um, and then other support to um, help the government message on public health measures uh, and awareness. Uh, and in fact, even to help them clean up uh, polling places after the last elections, do things like that so they could manage better in the pandemic. Um, so we've been aggressive in addressing the public health needs in Sri Lanka, and it's not a sector that we've worked in recently. Um, the U.S. Uh, used to uh, be a development partner in that space. Uh, in fact, we helped Sri Lanka end malaria <laughs> uh, here, which had a, had a good outcome, I think, for everybody. Um, but we were able to surge back into the space because of partnerships we've developed over time and obviously our commitment to um, try to combat the, the pandemic globally. So as we begin to wrap up this conversation, how does the U.S. government view the state of democracy in Sri Lanka? That's a loaded question. <laughs> um, uh, you know, uh, I know that Sri Lanka is South Asia's oldest democracy, and there are obviously strong traditions here, and I think a genuine desire among people to uh, pursue those traditions, to retain those traditions. Uh, but like many countries, Sri Lanka has seen its institutions tested, um, seen some of its values, such as freedom of speech, uh, threatened to a certain degree. You know, we see a really solid election process, uh, you know, happening, uh, and yet we see demonstrators that uh, are being dispersed or potentially even uh, detained. Um, so um, there are some challenges uh, with the state of democracy here. And we do have concern around the strength of democratic institutions um, and around the civil liberties uh, that people, that all people in Sri Lanka should be enjoying to the fullest. Um, Michelle Bachelet, the UN High Commissioner, highlighted a number of these challenges in her statement. You noted conversations in September, but going back to March uh, and the, uh, the UNHRC session uh, then, which uh, resulted in a resolution regarding Sri Lanka 46-1, um, she noted, of course, harassment of human rights defenders, um, journalists, some harassment of families have disappeared, um, some of the... Um, challenges in judicial proceedings, concern about militarization of civilian functions. Um, and while I don't want to paint a picture that Sri Lanka is a place on fire, because that I think is not true, um, there are governance quality issues, rule of law issues that really raise um, questions for people and raise questions among Sri Lankans. Um, you know, fundamentally, Sri Lankans have to own their democracy. Um, it has to be something of their making. And, you know, we can certainly offer our observations and our support. Um, and I mentioned, for example, earlier, some of the work we have, uh, we have done with parliament in helping establish oversight committees. Uh, you know, we continue to want to be a friend in spaces where we're welcome uh, to support Sri Lanka's democracy. Um, but, you know, this, this is something um, that when we look at international conventions, Sri Lanka has joined, like, Convention on Civic and uh, Political Rights, um, you know, where we feel maybe um, there's room to improve 
uh, in terms of the quality of, of the governance that we're seeing. Um, and you know, we hope that that's something that we can work on together as two democratic countries. Again, we should share some values in common. There are things that we can collaborate around and we've collaborated in the past uh, and maybe we can do so again in the future. So my last question, especially significant since you'll be wrapping up your time in Sri Lanka uh, very shortly, uh, what do you hope to see with regards to U.S. government's engagement with Sri Lanka in the years ahead? What do you hope this relationship produces in the years ahead? And what can we in the U.S. do better? Yeah, I mean, we talked earlier about just uh, effective communication and, and <laughs> sort of mutual understanding. Um, I also have thing we, we have to consider the long arc, you know, of the relationship. You, you noted this yourself. We, you know, we have 70 years of history. We really can't think about that to the exclusion of the future or our future interests or the exclusion of generating, frankly, practical and meaningful results for the Sri Lankan and the American public. I mean, that's fundamentally what our, uh, our end goal should be about, our diplomacy should be about, is making things better um, you know, for the American people and, and for uh, hopefully for our partners as well. And you know, if there's a long arc, a long history, we have in the past, we have to assume there's a long arc going forward. So coming back around to your question, what, what can that look like? I think we have a lot more space um, to collaborate uh, on some of these governance issues and looking at rule of law and looking at um, ways to um, strengthen institutions here and to do so in ways that are not necessarily adversarial. I mean, that obviously uh, relies on the government of Sri Lanka being willing to shift some of its uh, stances. Um, but I think if we think about this in the terms of broad international commitments, um, think about them in terms even of the sustainable development goals, particularly goal 16, um, these are the kinds of things that we can collaborate on. It's just going to take some probably long talking to get to that point. But really importantly, I think that relationship of the future also has to look at the other kinds of connectivity, business to business, people to people. I mean, we live in a world that's very global where we can communicate with one another in an instant and where we can, you and I can talk to one another and be halfway around the planet and yet see one another. Our futures are not completely uh, constrained by what two governments agree is going to happen. And the future I think is really around what people decide to do um, and sort of to take into their own hands. And whether that means studying together, doing business together or family relationships that span the globe, that's what our future is going to look like. And so we should be in a position uh, to be facilitating that engagement, making it positive, making it durable, uh, and making it something you know that leads to prosperity and peace. I think that's what most people want at the end of the day. I don't think the American public uh, you know, uh, is really hoping uh, for much different. Um, and you know, these are things that we have to think several steps ahead about about how to get to that space. Um, and how to find um, that, uh, that future where, where we can work together seamlessly on multiple levels. On that note, Ambassador, thank you so much for joining us today for this hour-long conversation. It was very insightful, very in-depth, and thank you so much for, for, for providing direct answers to so many of my questions. We really appreciate it, and we want to thank you for your service to our country. Thank you so much. Thank you, Andre, and thanks to Ryan as well. So Ryan, that was Ambassador Teplitz. Uh, I thought it was a really fascinating and insightful interview. And uh, I mean, oftentimes when you talk to some people in public office and so on, they try to paint a rosy picture, 
that everything's going great, our relationship's going strong, and so on. But the ambassador is very forthright. She said, hey, we've had some, you know, strong disagreements. We had some strong disagreements on, say, human rights accountability. We've had some uh, concerns about democracy and so on. But, I mean, she was honest about her concerns some of the issue areas that have not been agreeable between the United States and Sri Lanka and so on. Ryan, what were your thoughts? I think my biggest takeaway is what the ambassador said about the state of democracy in Sri Lanka and the future of Sri Lanka, you know, while her time there is coming to an end. I think one of the things that you and I, Andre, have talked about just kind of for the last maybe four or five months is the Biden administration's efforts to uh, promote and build democracy around the world. And this really uh, comes down to institution building. And that's something that the ambassador um, emphasizes that Sri Lanka has a strong history of democracy, but there are considerable challenges right now under the current government. And there, of course, are you know many challenges in Sri Lanka's history, given the civil war. Uh, and with that, the United States, part of their goal is to help rebuild these institutions to ensure that Sri Lankans can maintain a, a democratic state and ensure that there are there is you know inclusion for everyone. As and again, Andre, as we've talked about the the, the Tamil people, there's those challenges. So with the minority, uh, there there are challenges for representation. And so I I think uh, writ large, this episode really does a good job of kind of pinpointing. Uh, the broader U.S. strategy around the world. And she did also state, I thought, very interestingly, that the U.S. is actually concerned about, say, sovereignty issues with regards to some of China's investments, some stuff that's been going around those ports that we've been talking about for so long over the course of this miniseries. She was honest about that, saying that there are concerns, but of course, the U.S. cannot dictate what Sri Lanka does with China. The U.S. cares about the U.S.'s relationship with Sri Lanka. That's the relationship. But again, I mean, when you go and re-listen to this episode, perhaps do pay attention to what she says about how Sri Lanka fits into Indo-Pacific strategy, uh, for example, because we are hearing a lot about that pivot to the Indo-Pacific, especially with regards to U.S.-China relations, uh, what's happening with Taiwan, what's happening in East Asia. But again, the Indo-Pacific also touches Sri Lanka, touches India and so on. And yeah, then Ryan, I think what'll probably be good is that we'll likely have an episode after this that sort of wraps up uh, this miniseries, sort of reflects on all the interviews that we've had with three political figures or journalists, the economist, and now the ambassador that sort of consolidates it and reflects on really what can this story about Sri Lanka tell us about other smaller developing, perhaps post-conflict societies how U.S. foreign policy interacts with these countries, perhaps how it can improve, and what does this mean for great power competition? Absolutely. And again, this miniseries, Andre, that you embarked on is just the beginning of kind of these new kind of our, our new way to dive deeper into issues. And so we are working on a series uh, of other uh, smaller kind of deep dives. And so if you, any of you who are listening have any suggestions, uh, feel free to send us an email or DM us on social media, and we'd love to kind of hear your feedback and also explore uh, some of the countries or issues that you guys are all interested in. And if you have pitches, in all honesty, folks, if you have pitches for a potential miniseries and you pitch it well, we will read it and we will perhaps communicate with you about that. So keep that in mind as well. Absolutely. All right. Well, as always, uh, thank you all for listening and make sure to rate, review, and subscribe to the podcast. And as always, we'll see you next time.